Do you ever wonder if you are real? Ever wonder that? Let me ask you a theoretical question. This may seem a little crazy. Theoretical question. How do you know that you're not a robot? Okay, just theoretically, how do you know that you're not? Because what if, what if you are actually uh, just really programmed, well-programmed AI, artificial intelligence, that's, you're programmed to think that you're real, and you've gone through this whole life, you know, just assuming that you're real, but that's just your programming, and you're not a real person, that you're a robot. How would you actually know this? Is there a test so that you can know that you are a real person? Thankfully, there is a test that you can know that you are not a robot, that you are real, because we know that what separates humans from robots is that if you are a real human, that you have the ability to identify which squares contain motorcycles. And let's face it, it is only our ability as human beings to identify motorcycles, bridges, and traffic lights that separates us from the robots. And if there ever comes a day where AI and the robots figure out how to identify motorcycles, then that's the day that Google becomes Skynet and they release the Terminators, and it's all over for all of us. Until then, we have this firewall that we can know that we are real because we can identify the motorcycles. Now, let's face it, you probably not spent a lot of time being really worried that you're not a real human being. That probably doesn't keep you up at night. But you might have spent some time worrying if you're a real Christian. That are you genuinely saved? Are you really born again? Or are you just going through the motions? Is this something maybe you were brought up to believe that you've been around so long, but maybe it's not the real thing in your life? You might be asking yourself, am I, real or am I really saved or am I a fake? Have I fooled myself? Even worse, and this is the worst thing, maybe this is something that you've never worried about, but you should. Because there are people that have gone through life just assuming that they are right with God, assuming that they are Christians, that they are real, but they're going through the motions. Maybe they've even learned all the right things to say, and they could even meet with a pastor and say the right things, and we, we believe them, but it's not the real deal. And this is something that is a big part of 1 John, and what John the Apostle here is communicating to us through this letter that is written so that we can know that we know God, so that you can know that you really are a genuine believer, or if it's the case that you're not, that you can realize that there's a problem and that you need to come to Christ for real for the first time. And so as we keep getting into 1 John, and I hope that you're here consistently, if you miss a message, I hope you, you know, watch it online, uh, so that, and I hope you're thinking about this as we, we keep going, it's going to keep giving different tests to help us to realize the truth of this. And when we get even to the end of John, he's going to say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And what a blessed thing it is that you can actually know that you have eternal life. But it can't be just wishful thinking. It can't be just, well, I think I have it. We have to look at how does Scripture here tell us that we can have evidence that we can know these things. So 1 John, this letter, gives us, I, I think it works like this, three tests 
so that you can know that you know God. And when I say that, I mean that you have eternal life, that you are genuinely saved, that you're born again, you're regenerate. These things that you can know. And we're going to see, as we keep going, there are three basic tests. There is uh, the test of obedience. Okay, so a moral test. There's the test of love. And these are two that are going to be introduced in the passage we're going to be looking at today. That we're going to see that, yeah, it says that there's a test about obedience. There's a test of love. And the other one is a doctrinal test. And we're going to get into that in, in future messages. We've actually already seen this a little bit in 1 John. There are certain things that you, use, you have to believe. You have to believe the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is. You have to believe that, that you are a sinner. If you deny that, that's not a mark of a real Christian. So these are three tests that uh, are not necessarily the causes of our salvation, but evidences that salvation is real. And as we keep going through the letter, it's going to repeat some of these tests, going into them more deeply to help us to understand what these are. And of course, this is also going to help us understand what a real Christian ought to look like. So it's not, it shouldn't just be that we look at this and say, good, check that box, check that box, and I'm done. No, we want to keep growing to become more like a real Christian is described the way we ought to be. So let's get into this. Uh, we have kind of three sections here, 1 John 2, 3 through 14. The first section, we're going to read 3 through 6. And in this section, we're going to see that real Christians pass the test of obedience. I think obedience, this moral test, is the first test here to see if, are you a genuine Christian? Is there evidence backing that up? Or is that evidence lacking or pointing in the other direction? So, verses 3 through 6. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So let's start by just thinking through this. And as I mentioned, each of these tests are going to come up again in uh, John, in 1 John here. So we're going to talk about these, but there's always more that we can talk about and more that we'll see in messages to come. But we look at this passage, and at the beginning, I just noticed it says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him. And I want to just pause there and think about this. Again, just the fact that you can actually know that you are right with God that you can know that you are saved, that there are reasons, there are tests that are, that are given to us so we can examine ourselves, examine our hearts, uh, to see if that, um, you know, we also have the Holy Spirit testifying in our heart that we are children of God, but other things we can look at to back that up, to corroborate, is that really the truth? And don't take it for granted, the fact that the Bible says that you can actually know this, because there are other streams of Christianity that teach that you can't really know it. You can't really know if you are right with God. You know, keep being a good person, keep coming to church and obeying the church, and hopefully things will work out for you. 
And you'd never have that sense of security knowing that you know God. But Scripture here tells us that it is something that you can know, and you can know that you have eternal life here and now. I also want us to think about how it describes this. I mean, it's going to talk about being saved in different ways, you know, being born again, uh, being in Christ. But right at the beginning here, it describes it as that we have come to know him. And think of what a big deal that is, that Christians, real Christians, are people that know God. There is a difference between knowing someone and just knowing about someone. And so being a real Christian, it's not just that you know about God, you've heard of him, you know some facts about him, but to know somebody, you have a relationship with that person. I mean, I know facts about um, Patrick Mahomes or Alexander Hamilton or whoever it is. You can can know about those people, but I don't know them, but I, I know my wife, I know my kids, I know many of you. We have personal relationships. There's a big difference. Do you just know about God or do you actually know him? And that's one of the blessings of salvation. It's that you have a relationship with God, that he knows you and you know him, that that relationship that, that it was severed because of sin is repaired. You know, if you had an earthly leader you know, president or an emperor, and if you had a death sentence from that leader, you'd be glad to know if that death sentence was lifted. But Christianity is more than that. It's not just you don't have to go to hell. It's that you're known by him and you know him. You're adopted into his family. You're one of his. That's a huge, big deal. But this first test that it gives, as we read this, is a test of obedience. That our, our actions starting to conform to Christ? Are we being changed? Are we living in obedience to him? And it seems that there were people that, well, in John's day, false teachers that were claiming truth, claiming to know God, but they're living in sin. They're living just, you know, doing what they want. And John's saying, you know, look at them. They're not the real deal. They're walking in darkness. They're not even trying to obey him. They're, they're living in, in just continuous sin. That's a sign they're not the real deal. And the same for people today, that this is a sign. So obedience. So we keep looking at this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So just to make that really clear, that double liar and the truth is not in him for emphasis, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. I think it means that the love of God, which causes you to become a Christian, that... Um, is uh, done its work of, of saving you, keeps his word. So obeying him is not just living a certain way, it's he's commanded us, he's spoken, he's instructed us through his word, and are we keeping that? Are we living according to that? And it says, by this we may know that we are in him. That's another, real Christians are in Christ. You're not outside, you're included in him, you're joined to him, you're united with him. But whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way that in which he walked. Say, I'm in Christ, but you're living in a way that's completely different than how Jesus Christ lived and the example that he set? That doesn't make sense. So, I mean, just to say this in clear ways, growing obedience to God is evidence of a born-again heart. And if we want to put it the other way, a lack 
of desire to obey God's commands is evidence of an unregenerate heart. Born again, regenerate, it's the same thing. It's when God saves us, it, it saves us, giving us a, a born-again heart, that there's a change that happens inside, that uh, the heart of stone is removed, we give a heart of flesh, that he starts this new work inside of us. And it's going to play out in the way we live, the way we live our lives. Obedience is actually living out what God commands. Okay, so it starts in the heart. That's a source of things. God changes that, but it shouldn't just stay there. It shouldn't just be, I have good intentions, but you never see it in your life. That it's going to start seeping out. There's going to be changes in the way you live. Things that you're going to see, you're going to choose different things. That people are going to see that you're choosing different things. You start living it out, so it's not just good intentions. And notice in this passage, too, it talks about God's commands. Okay, so we need to actually pay attention to what God actually teaches us to do. When God says there's something we ought to do, we, we start doing it because we realize that pleases God and that's right. God says don't do this thing. And when we start, start making it so we're not doing that, we, we fight against doing that, we stop doing that. You know, and I've heard stories, you know, from, from some of you that have, when you came to Christ, uh, that realized that you had something that maybe you loved doing that you thought was fine and you realized, wait a second, God's word says this is not something that pleases God. I have to change. I need to start living in a different way. And that's a good sign. I mean, that's a mark of reality in a Christian's life. We also have Jesus' example. Not that we're to go out walking on water, that type of thing, but his character, his moral standards, uh, his heart, what he cared about, that if we're in Christ, our heart is being transformed to be like Jesus's heart, so that's going to change our actions because we start to love the things that he loves, and we start to not love what he doesn't love, and he doesn't love sin, he doesn't love evil. I think an important thing to just make really clear as we talk about this, and as we talk about some of these other tests as well too, is that growth in obedience is an effect of salvation. It's not a cause of salvation. Okay, it's really important that we make that clear because we are saved by grace alone and it's received through faith alone. Okay? So what we are not saying, what John is not saying is do better things, clean up your act, and you're saved because you started being a better person. That's not how it is. We're saved by, by grace alone, by what Jesus did, but when that happens, there's going to be a change in our life. We think of cause and effect. Uh, I like to explain it this way. If you have a rock and you throw that rock into a pond, okay, there is going to be a splash. Okay, the splash did not cause the rock. The splash is the effect of the rock, okay? And so, if you really do throw a rock into a pond, and it's not frozen, okay, uh, there, there's going to be a splash. In the same way, if Jesus comes into your life, if he saves you, there's going to be a splash in your life. There's going to be an effect that shows. doesn't always show the exact same way for every person. The timeline isn't always the same. Sometimes it's 
uh, slower going or different areas, but there's going to be something that demonstrates this. We receive salvation by faith alone, yep, but the faith that we have, genuine saving faith, is also a repentant faith. It's a faith that recognizes that I am not God. I am not the Lord of my life, and it's wrong of me to think I should be calling the shots. That He is Lord. He is the one that deserves to be calling the shots, and therefore I'm in sin when I'm trying to do my own thing and live that I'm the master of the universe. So it's repentant faith. That's the type of faith that does save us. When you're born again, also your heart is changed. We're given a new heart. It's a a spiritual heart surgery that happens. We're born again or regenerated. When someone is saved, at least in the, in the church age, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He comes into your life. And uh, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and He starts to change you from the inside out. And every Christian has received, receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And so, there's going to be that effect. You can't have the Holy Spirit come into your life and just remain unchanged. He's going to be working, changing you from the inside out. And when we come to know God, we know Him personally in a way that changes us. I mean, if you know, you realize what Jesus did for you, that He loved you enough that He suffered and died on the cross, that He took the wrath of God for you, that you, if you've come to believe that you really deserve to go to hell, but that Jesus Christ, the innocent Son of God, took all of that condemnation upon himself and absorbed it for you when he went to the cross as your substitute, knowing he was doing it for you, that changes a person. That changes your motivation. You want to live for him. You have a relationship with him. You know him. You know that he loved you enough to do that. Jesus really does change lives. Salvation does sometimes in huge, dramatic ways. You think of uh, John Newton, who was a slave trader. He was a slave trader, and he came to know the Lord and was saved and ended up being a pastor in England and wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader. Think of the change in his life. Now, the other hand, though, think of people that claim to know Christ, uh, but there's, there's nothing in their life. I was thinking about a girl that I knew in high school, and we went to the same church in the same youth group, and I remember where I was in church, and me and some other friends were having a conversation with her, and she was all into a lot of things of the world, and boys, and parties, and all kinds of things, and I don't remember exactly what was said to her, but I remember she actually said, I have my fire insurance, my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I can live however I want, and that's how she viewed salvation that I prayed some prayer. I know I'm not going to hell. Jesus died for my sins, so I can sin all I want. God knows her heart, and who knows what happened after this. But just basing it on the test that we see in 1 John, that is not a good sign. That is not a sign that this girl genuinely knew Jesus Christ. Because that's not something, that's not an attitude a real Christian would have. Yeah, we have our struggles, but we don't think of salvation as just a get-out-of-hell-free card so we can do whatever I want. Just fire insurance and just go on sinning. But I think there are a lot of reasons why sometimes there are fake Christians or people that assume that they're Christians, but it's not the real deal. Sometimes people have a bunch of head knowledge, but it's not actual heart knowledge. Uh, 
Some people have never really accepted their sin and their actual need for a Savior. They haven't really come to the conviction that, that they themselves are sinners and actually would deserve hell without Jesus. And so they don't really think that they need a Savior. A lot of people trust their own goodness, their good works. Well, I'm better than the person next to me, or I've, I've never committed the real bad sins. And so, of course, God will save me. God's grading on a curve. I'm better than other people. And, you know, on top of that, I've, I've trusted Jesus. I've said some prayer. But, and maybe they've said some prayer, but the whole thing is short-circuited because they're still trusting in themselves as well. Or maybe some human ceremony. They think, well, I've trusted Jesus, but also, you know, I was, I, I was baptized. Maybe as a baby, maybe as an adult. And they think, that's what saves me. That's what makes me right. Or I take communion. Or I, I walked an aisle, or I said some prayer that I didn't understand, but, uh, you know, teacher gave me some cheese balls and said, now you're saved. Sometimes that happens. But they really understand if they really come to faith. So that's the first test. The past test of obedience, a changed heart that starts caring about God and wanting to live for Him. If you see that in your life, that's a good sign. If you don't see that, that should cause concern. Second, that we see, we're going to look at 7 through 11, real Christians pass the test of love. So the first test that we see in 1 John is, is obedience. The second is love. Like I said, there's a doctrinal test too. We're going to see in other, other weeks, uh, but this one is the test of love. So let's read this section. Beloved, notice he starts with beloved, people that are loved by God. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John's kind of taking his time getting up to what this is, but now he tells us. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So we look at this. In the first few verses, yeah, John is... Um, you know, he's kind of building anticipation. What is this? Uh, you know, you read the gospel, you read John's writing. He just writes differently than Paul does. Um, there's a different style, but here he's, he's working his way up to it. And at first it seems like, John, have you kind of lost it? Um, what are you saying here? Is it an old commandment? Is it a new commandment? What's going on here? He says, uh, you know, a new commandment I give to you. Well, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. And then he says... You've heard it. At the same time, it is a new commandment. I think the solution to this is something that John remembers Jesus saying, that John recorded in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, this is John 13, 34 through 35, it's, he records Jesus saying, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I think that's what he's getting at. 
that he's saying that, you know, I'm writing to you, this is a new commandment, but, you know, you've heard about this before, this goes back to Jesus. And actually, I mean, you go back to the Old Testament, you're supposed to, to love one another, to love your neighbor. But when Jesus said this, it's a new commandment, that just not love your neighbor, but to love each other as I have loved you. And now Christians have the example of Jesus, that we love each other not just the way that we'd want to love each other, but following Jesus' example and his example of self-sacrifice. That's how we're to love each other. So that's this, this new old commandment that we're given, following the example of Jesus and loving one another. And it says, uh, well, Jesus said, this is how other people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So when it talks about loving your brother, um, I think, yeah, that might also refer, you know, to your biological brother, but, uh, you know, it's especially talking about, you know, your brothers and sisters in Christ, other Christians, you know, fighting with one another, do we can't stand each other, or do we actually have love for one another because we recognize that we're brothers and sisters. God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother. We're together in one family, and we're growing in that family love for one another and living that out with our actual choices, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, that this effect is having in our life, that the more that we're in him, we're in the light, it's changing our hearts and our lives. Not that it's instantly perfect, but that it's having this effect to cause us to love more and more. Again, verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. It's a sign that you're not a real Christian. That's what John is saying. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. So this is all saying that love for your brother, for other Christians, is evidence of a born-again heart. And on the contrast, hating your brother, hating other Christians, not having love for them, is evidence of an unregenerate heart. That uh, your heart really is not right with God that it hasn't been changed. Our old nature that we have as sinners, it's selfish to the core. Even when people do things um, that seem you know, good, there's selfish motives to it. But when we have this new heart that God gives us and that is growing in us, it's a heart that's like Jesus and his type of love, which was not a selfish love. It was a self-giving love. And so as if you're a real Christian, you're being made like that. So you're not just inward and selfish, but that you're caring about other people. You're willing to sacrifice. You're willing to serve, following Jesus' example and what he did. And that only really happens when you have a born-again heart that Jesus has given you. And so that's why this is another sign to look at in your heart and in your life. And I know sometimes we think, well, let's look at other people. Well, let's look at ourselves first. What do we see happening in our lives? Is there growth that is happening there? Is there genuine Christian love that you see growing in your heart? Or is there just bitterness or indifference or just disregard or disdain for other people, even other, other Christians? Notice, too, that this is a commandment that is given when it talks about this. Um, it's a, whether it's an old commandment or a new commandment, it's a commandment. 
It's not a suggestion. It's not, I suggest that you would love each other. I suggest that you would do this. No, it's, we're being told we need to do this, and to not do that is sin. Now, some may object and say, well, how can you command love? Because you can't really command emotion. You can't just say, feel a certain way. Well, there's a few things that we need to think about. First of all, love is also a verb, okay? So it is also something, it's not just something you feel, but it is something you do. And we need to act out. We need to live out love for other people, actually caring, actually serving them. And sometimes you'll find by doing that, the, the feelings will come along with that as well too. And if you don't have uh, affection properly for other people around you, pray for God to be working in your heart. Okay? Why think, well, this is in my heart and it's just how it is. Well, can't God change your heart? Can't he keep changing your heart? And if you know that your heart or your affections aren't right, pray for him to be at work in your heart and to be doing that. Also, too, I think it's so much easier to love people up close than far away. And sometimes we keep people at a distance or they're abstract. You have to sometimes get close to people. And then you realize they're, they're real people and you realize their hurts. And I find it's so much easier to love people when you're up close to them than when they're just at a distance. Sometimes stop keeping people at a distance. Get close to them so that you can, uh, you can actually love them and that your affection for them will change as well. But hate here, I mean, just notice what it says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I mean, that's a bad description. You don't want that to be the case. But that is the case if you, if you don't have love and say so you hate your brother, and that hate can just be, you know, indifference. It could be just, it doesn't have to be just, it might be just venomous bitterness, but it might just be absolute disregard for them. But the word for hate there in the original language is in the present tense. This is an ongoing habitual action. So if you are filled with hate, this is not a positive sign that you are a real Christian. Okay, if the ice in your heart is not melting, that is not a sign that you are in the light. Okay, earlier this week I thought I would have a good illustration because we didn't have snow for a few weeks and we had some pretty warm weather. But I noticed there was still some snow in some places. They were like in the bushes or underneath or underneath you know, some places that were in the shade. And I realized, yeah, when things are in the shade like that, the ice isn't melting. And in the same way, uh, you know, when the ice is not melting in our hearts, that shows that we're not in the light, that you're still in the darkness. I mean, so get yourself in the light so that God can keep melting your heart and causing you to love like he loved. So that's the second test. We've seen the test of obedience. We've seen the test of love. Now this next part here kind of goes in a different direction. Because if you're looking ahead, if you have your, your Bible open, it says, I'm writing to you little children, fathers, young men. And it seems like a whole different thing. And at one point, this was going to be a whole different sermon uh, because I just thought we'd deal with this differently. But then we had the week where we had a blizzard. So we had to combine this. And I'm actually glad that we did. Because looking at this and thinking about this and what it means in this next section, I think it shows that real Christians can be at different stages of spiritual growth. 
And that's something that we need to realize as well. That when we look at these things about, um, you know, marks of a true Christian, evidences of it, there can be discouragement at times because you're going to look at your life and you say, but I'm not perfect in these areas. But is it about perfection or is it about what God is doing in your life? That there's growth that you are seeing. So let's read this next section together. Talk about 12 through 14. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Those are worth just meditating about, but there are different interpretations as far as what these three things mean. I mean, it talks about the children, it talks about fathers and then young men, and it also seems like, why is it that order? Um, and there's some that uh, have the view that this is different stages in the Christian life and Christian growth. There's some that interpret this as, it's literally talking about children and literally talking about fathers and young men, Okay. There's some that point out that, well, John, in the letter, he calls all Christians children. And so it's talking about when it says children, that's all of us. But then Christians can be subdivided into fathers or young men. And some say that that has to do with spiritual growth and that has to do with age. I'm just going to take the view here, I think this makes the most sense, that it is talking about three stages of spiritual growth that there are newer Christians that are, that are children. And in one sense, yes, we're all children, okay? Uh, but there's some that they're, um, they're at the beginning stage of the Christian life. And some, it talks about fathers next, they're at the other end. And I think it's not just talking about males, okay? So fathers, or if you want to think mothers as well too, but people that have walked with the Lord a long time and have matured in the faith, and then others that are in the middle of it and uh, are growing in their Christian life. So let me just say a few things about each of these when we think about this. And I'm going to group these together, even though John writes it um, with them spaced apart. So for children, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So think of those things that are true. If you're a real Christian, you're at least a child. And I think these things apply to all of us as Christians. And what a blessing that at least these two things are true. Forgiveness of sins. The fact that we are sinners, we've all done some awful things, we've thought awful things, terrible things in our heart, and God says, I forgive you of these things because Jesus died for those sins. Jesus paid for those sins on the cross. You're not accountable for them anymore because Jesus paid the price for you. That's huge. And it says, forgiven for his name's sake. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did as your substitute. And then it also says, because you know the Father. 
So every Christian has a relationship with God. Every Christian knows God. Maybe it's, you're just starting to get to know him, but you know God. This is not for the spiritual elites, that they know God, but you don't. The instant that you turn to Jesus Christ and trust him, you know God. You have a relationship with him. It's not just about you don't have to go to hell. You have a relationship with God. Wow, that's huge. So he talks about the children first, and then he skips to the end, to the, to the fathers, or we'll say the mothers. But I think this is those that have been Christians for a long time. And when he writes about them, he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Um, not a typo. Didn't accidentally do that. He says the same thing twice, which means he's really underlining this. And so thinking about this, I think what he's getting at is that for the fathers, for these mature Christians, that they have a long-standing and deep relationship with God. That it's a relationship, they didn't just meet yesterday, but they have a relationship that goes way back. I think of people in your life, there's some people that you know, and there's some people that you have known for decades, and that you have been through things together. And that if you have been a Christian for a long time and growing in him, you've been through some things. You've been able to see God work in your life, in other people's lives. You've been able to see his faithfulness in your life through some really, really difficult times. And so there is a depth, a long-standing depth in your faith that is, is deeper than, than when you first believed. So if you're a new Christian or if you're in the middle, man, just keep on learning, keep on loving the Lord because it keeps getting deeper and richer as you go through life. And even the hard things in life, God will use those to give you a deeper relationship with him. And that's more valuable than the problems that you would go through. The payoff of that is a big, such a big deal. And then it talks about the young men. I'm say young women as well too. And for those, it says, I'm writing to you young men and at first it says, because you have overcome the evil one. There's been some victory over Satan, over his schemes, over sin, temptation. And then he says, I'm writing to you, young men. He impacts it more because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So think of the things that are true there. They say you are, you are strong. There's a strength that you have. That, you know, children, they're, they're, they're young, they have a relationship. You know, we have a relationship with, with kids in a literal sense. They have a relationship with you. But you grow up, you, you become stronger as you enter that maturity. So as you grow in the Christian life, you get strength that maybe you don't have right away. So, you know, the instant that you're saved, you're not the Christian that you will be as you continue to grow. And there will be more victory that you have over Satan, his schemes, temptation, uh, you know, habits, different things in your life that bad thoughts that Satan has over you. That doesn't mean everything is going to be perfect. That doesn't mean there's going to be an end to struggles, not in this life, but there's going to be significant victories and changes that you see. And it gives the reason why this is the case. And it's because of the Word of God. 
We can't just think it's a matter of just time ticking away. It's because that you're strong like this because you know and you use the Word of God. That it is in you. Notice it says, uh, because the Word of God abides in you. So it's not just that you are in the Word of God, but that because you're in the Word of God, the Word of God is in you. And that's important. So don't think that you're going to grow as a Christian if you're not in the Word of God, or if you're hardly ever in the Word of God. Now, I'm glad that you're here listening to this, or that you're, you're listening to the, this online or a recording, but if it is just once a week that you're coming, or if you're someone, you know, a lot of times people, they come you know, once in a while, they kind of half listen, and... Uh, not really coming to really absorb things, don't expect that to really help you to grow and be healthy. If you only ate a meal once a week or once every other week or when you felt like it, you're not going to be strong. But also, too, the Word of God has to abide in you, okay? So you don't want to be a a spiritual anorexic, but you also don't want to be a spiritual bulimic. And think of what a bulimia is. It's you, you eat a bunch and then you, you know, get rid of it before it can absorb and become a part of you. You need to let the Word of God abide in you. So whether it is your Sunday school class or Bible study, your devotions or a sermon, I hope that it's not just you walk out of here and you forget about it, but you're thinking about it. You may be reading the passage again. You're, you're absorbing it so that the Word of God abides in you and can be changing you. You have to let the nutrition stay in you to change you. But that gives you strength and helps you to overcome the evil one. And I think this is so helpful to have at the end of this message. Again, because we're talking about real Christians in these tests, and there might be some that are discouraged because they don't see this perfectly in their lives yet, or they're newer Christians. But know this, Immature Christians are still real Christians. There's a big difference between being an immature Christian or a new Christian and a fake Christian. And it is way better to be a new real Christian than an old fake Christian. You might see that you have a long way to go in the Christian life. That maybe you're just starting out and that's okay. Because the most important thing really is not just where you're at, but the direction that you're going. And that's what we're looking at here. If you are a child in the faith, you can still know that your sins are forgiven and that you already have a relationship with God. That child, father, uh, young man, you're all part of the family already. So don't be discouraged if you don't see perfection in your heart and life already. None of us really do. But be encouraged if you see growth in your life, in your actions, in your love. But if you don't see anything, if you don't see anything like this growing in your heart and life, then that's a red flag. That should be something that gets your attention. And maybe you just know God, you know about God, but you don't really know him yet. Maybe that's what it means. And maybe you've been going to church a long time or you've been going through the motions, but maybe it's time for you to turn to Jesus Christ with repentant faith for real to have your sins washed away. 
and to know him and to truly be born again. So look in your life. May it help you to have assurance, to have salvation, and to know that you know God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of instruction, Lord God. And again, I pray for every genuine Christian here that you would help these things not to just discourage them, but to be an encouragement and an assurance to them as they see work in their heart and their lives. And may they have other people around that are able to tell them as well that they see these things as well too and give glory to you. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you yet, that doesn't have a relationship, that doesn't have their sins forgiven. Be working in their life. I pray that you would grab a hold of their heart, turn them to you, and that they would turn to you in repentant faith and believing that they are a sinner and they can do nothing on their own to make it right with you, but accepting that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has died on the cross to take away their sin. May they rely on you fully and be genuinely saved. And thank you that you come into our hearts and lives, that you continue to work, help us to grow continuously in obedience and in love to know you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.